Welcome to our Catechism class. It's a weekly look at the Heidelberg Catechism to help you learn Christian doctrine with a warm and practical application. Each lesson has its own study guide, and the web link to find that guide can be found in the episode notes. Okay, let's start the lesson. Welcome again to our Catechism class. The doctrine of the Lord's Supper or Holy Communion was a major issue at the time of the Reformation, and I suggest that it still is, even today. The Roman Catholic Church stressed what was to them the vital importance of their sacramental masses. And so for the Reformers and for our instructor in the Catechism, the errors of Rome in regard to Holy Communion needed to be dealt with. And Ursinus himself deals with the differences between the Protestant Reformed teaching on the Lord's Supper and the Roman Mass over three separate Lord's Days, Lord's Day 28 to Lord's Day 30. Today we're looking at Lord's Day 29. And in that section of the Catechism, question 78, we're asked, Are then the bread and wine changed into the real body and blood of Christ? And the answer is no. It's an emphatic no. The Catechist goes on, just as the water of baptism is not changed into the blood of Christ and is not the washing away of sins itself, but is simply God's sign and pledge, so also the bread in the Lord's Supper does not become the body of Christ itself, although it is called Christ's body, in keeping with the nature and usage of sacraments. Well, sacraments, in that case being signs that point us to the reality indicated by that sign. So in this episode of the podcast, we shall think about the Roman Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation. I'm Bob McAvoy, and this is the Semper Reformata podcast. Now before we begin, just pause the podcast or the CD recording and read Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 down to verse 17 and pay particular attention to the opening and closing verses, verse 14 and verse 17. And then when you've read it, start the recording over again. Right, you're back. So I'm assuming you've read Romans chapter 2, verse 14, down to verse 17. I'm going to read those two verses together. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14 says, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil. Wherefore in all things it behoved him to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. 
So Jesus became flesh and blood for us that he would die on the cross and destroy the devil for us. I wonder have you ever heard the phrase hocus pocus? If you have, you'll know that it refers to a magic trick, some kind of conjuring act, and it's often used pejoratively to describe irrational human activities. But where did it come from? Many people think it's a parody of the Roman Catholic Mass, and specifically the doctrine of transubstantiation, that point in the Mass when, in a traditional Latin Mass, the priest utters the word, Hoc est enum corpus meum. This is my body. As if by magic, when those words are muttered over the bread and wine, that bread and wine becomes the actual body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ in the Roman Catholic Mass. Certainly the words sound like the Latin, hoc est corpus. And you can just imagine some members of a Catholic congregation around the time of the Reformation listening to a Latin Mass in a language they did not understand and hearing that phrase, while this mystical, seemingly magical change was taking place, apparently. But is it really just hocus-pocus? Because Catholics really do believe, officially, that in the Mass, bread and wine do become Christ's flesh and blood. The Roman Catholic Church has woven a great deal of superstition and error into its teachings about what they call the Eucharist. It's the central element at the Catholic Mass, and the Eucharist was and still is a saving ordinance for Catholics through which grace is dispensed to the faithful. The Catholic Catechism stresses this importance to them. It states, and I quote, The Eucharist is the source and summit of the Christian life. The other sacraments, and indeed all ecclesiastical ministries and works of the apostolate, are bound up with the Eucharist, and are oriented toward it. For in the blessed Eucharist is contained the whole spiritual good of the Church, namely Christ himself. Catechism of the Catholic Church, 1324. Now it's that last line of the Catholic Catechism that concerns us here where it says, in the blessed Eucharist is contained the whole spiritual good of the Church, namely Christ himself. Catholics do believe, officially, that Christ is actually present during the Mass, that the bread is his actual body and the wine is his literal blood. At the command of the priest, this is my body and this is my blood, the bread and wine become the actual body and blood of the Lord Jesus. And that's what they call transubstantiation. But even though the priest utters the phrase, this is my body, and the bread and wine are changed miraculously into flesh and blood, rational people will look at it. And they will observe that the elements are, without doubt, still physical bread and wine. That's explained by the Roman Catholic Church as what they call an accident. It's an application, not of biblical theology, but of Greek Aristotelian philosophy. They talk about substance and accidents. In transubstantiation, the accidents, the characteristics of bread and wine, remain the same, while the inner substance, its essential reality, comes to be entirely different. So, in other words, the physical appearance of the bread and wine are non-essential, 
as opposed to their real essence, their substance. So the non-essential elements of the bread and wine remain the same, while their substance is changed into the body and blood of Christ. Now, if you think that sounds like gobbledygook, you're absolutely right. It is. And the Reformers certainly thought so. The Savoy Declaration of Faith and Order of 1658, Chapter 30, Section 5 and 6, says that the outward elements in this sacrament, in substance and nature, still remain truly and only bread and wine as they were before. The doctrine which maintains a change of the substance of bread and wine into the substance of Christ's body and blood, commonly called transubstantiation, by a consecration of a priest or by any other way, is repugnant, not to scripture alone, but even to common sense and reason. Overthroweth the nature of the sacrament, and hath been and is the cause of many superstitions, yea, even of gross idolatries. Of course, Catholic theologians defend their beliefs, saying that the process of changing the bread and wine into the actual body and blood of the Lord is a miracle, and thus it defies rational thought. As the priest lifts the wine, he mutters, Mysterium fidei, a mystery of faith, a miracle. But God never did a miracle except that it was obvious and apparent to everyone who witnessed it. That's the point of miracles, to cause people to believe. In Exodus chapter 4 and 2 and 3, Moses' rod became a serpent and then became a rod again, and people saw what had happened and knew that God was at work. When Jesus changed the water into wine, the resultant liquid did not retain the accidents of water. The opposite was the case. It looked like wine, it tasted like wine, and it had the effects of wine. If transubstantiation is to be considered a miracle, it's like no other miracle that God ever did. And we know that when Jesus spoke to his disciples, he often used words and phrases figuratively or metaphorically. They were to help his disciples and those who followed him to understand difficult theological concepts. For example, he said in John chapter 10 and verse 9, I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved. We know that he wasn't literally a door. We know that he's using a door simply to describe what he is doing in the act of salvation, bringing people into God's kingdom. We know that when Jesus said, I am the bread of life, uh, in John 6 and 35, we know that he wasn't the bread of life. We know that he wasn't an actual loaf of sliced bread. And there's many other examples where Jesus likened himself to something familiar just to aid comprehension. And when he gathered his disciples around the table for that first Lord's Supper, and he said, This is my body, 
why would we assume that he was speaking literally and not metaphorically? After all, the disciples were sitting with him, all around him. They were looking at him. They were looking at the bread and looking at the wine, and they were quite capable of understanding that he was speaking spiritually, that the bread and wine were just that, that they were bread and wine. And Christ was sitting at the table with his disciples, bodily and physically present. And he himself ate and drank the bread and wine that were before them. All of the Protestant reformers of the 16th century and onwards rejected the notion that the bread and wine are changed into the body and blood of the Lord Jesus at the command of a Roman priest. There were three main Protestant understandings of the presence of Christ in the elements that emerged at the Reformation. Let's briefly examine them. What about Martin Luther? Well, Luther certainly moved away from transubstantiation, but he still believed in the real presence of Christ in the elements. He taught what's known as consubstantiation. That syllable con in that word simply means with. For Luther and his followers, the elements are not changed. There's no change in substance, but Christ is nevertheless present with the elements, or to be more accurate, in, with and under the elements. For after all, they think Christ is present everywhere. Christ is ubiquitous. So Luther's small catechism reads, What is the sacrament of the altar? It is the true body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ under the bread and wine, instituted by Christ himself for us Christians to eat and to drink. So Luther believed that Jesus was literally present, not at the command of a priest, but because he is always present. Ulrich Zwingli, on the other hand, at the other end of the spectrum of Eucharistic belief in the 16th century, was the Swiss reformer, the pastor of Zurich. And Zwingli believed and taught that the Lord's Supper was simply a memorial feast, a commemoration of the death of Christ, with no change whatsoever in the elements, the bread and wine remain nothing more than bread and wine. But there's a middle position in between those two extremes, Luther and Zwingli, and it was the teaching of John Calvin, the reformer of Geneva. It's a position taken by our catechist too. It says that the Lord's Supper is a feast of remembrance, but also a time of true communion with the Lord, who is spiritually present with us by faith through the presence of the Holy Spirit, who is always among us when the church meets together. So taking that position, in question 79, our instructor asks us, Why then does Christ call the bread his body, and the cup his blood, or the new covenant in his blood? And why does Paul speak of a participation in the body and blood of Christ? Our answer is, Christ speaks in this way for a good reason. He wants to teach us by his supper that as bread and wine sustain us in this temporal life, so his crucified body and shed blood are true food and drink for our souls to eternal life. But even more important, he wants to assure us by the visible sign and pledge, first, that through the working of the Holy Spirit, we share in his true body and blood as surely as we receive with our mouth 
these holy signs in remembrance of him. And second, that all his suffering and obedience are as certainly ours as if we personally had suffered and paid for our sins. So let's sum this difficult lesson up. Just as the bread and wine are actually present on the table, Christ is present with us at the Lord's Supper, but only in a spiritual sense, only because the Holy Spirit is there, and only through faith in the heart of the believer. So our communion feast then is a spiritual eating and a spiritual drinking. But understanding the spiritual presence of the Lord through faith at the communion table is only one part of the significance of the Lord's Supper. There's much more to our communion service than that. At the Lord's Supper, we're taught to remember Calvary, and we're drawn back to that hill outside Jerusalem where our Saviour gave his life for sinners like us. And we enter into communion with Christ by faith, fellowship with him through the work of the Holy Spirit. And we look forward to his return as we proclaim the Lord's death as long as this earth lasts. And we are spiritually nourished and we are brought together around the table so we are united as fellow believers in Christ. And what about the Catholic Mass? There's far more to the Catholic Mass than transubstantiation. There's other errors to be discussed and to be teased out. So join me for our next class as we find out why the Reformers were so opposed to the doctrines of the Roman Mass that they described it as a blasphemous fable. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, please help to make it better known by opening the podcast app on your phone or mobile device. Then, search for The Semper Reformata Podcast. Subscribe and give it a 5-star rating. See you next time.